Well, good morning, and uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, welcome once again. As John welcomed you earlier, we're glad to have you with us today. I want to, before I get started here, just acknowledge what's happening in Florida. We obviously have had this happen in Texas here just in the recent weeks, the hurricane that's blowing through, and, and I'm, I'm well aware that uh, churches in Florida are not, not gathering for worship this morning. They're, they're just not able to do that with that hurricane blowing uh, up and through and along the coast today, and so... I'd encourage you all to be in prayer for those folks, so many thousands and thousands of people affected by that. I'll pray for that in, uh, in just a moment. Uh, I know Alex Dean mentioned to me that, that uh, the church where they came from, where he and Alicia came from, Heritage Baptist in Lakeland, is in the middle of the state, but people are sheltering up there today to be protected from the storm rather than gathering for, for a formal worship service like we are leisurely and, and carefree relatively here with such good weather, they're not able to do that. So we'll pray for them here in a moment. This morning we're in Luke chapter 6 once again, beginning in verse 36. And this is, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, this is uh, Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, but it's called the Sermon on the Plain in, in Luke's Gospel. And this is Jesus preaching to the 12 apostles as he's just called them along with a great crowd of people that have gathered there near the Sea of Galilee where he is at this time. And Jesus is here in this little sermon proclaiming the characteristics of the people who are in the kingdom of God. These are the the characteristics, some of them. He's introducing this crowd to what it means to live in his kingdom. And he's already described to them the very countercultural blessings that come to someone who is a part of this kingdom. And he's described the hardest commandment we saw last week of love in this kingdom that, that you must love, that you're called to love not only those who love you back, but also even your enemies, because God has done the same. And uh, towards the end of it, he's going to, to introduce the necessary foundation for those who live in this kingdom. But here in these words, this morning, beginning in verse 36 and following, he is describing the ethic of relationships in the kingdom of God. And this ethic is founded on God's measure of mercy to us. So you young Christians, as you listen along, you young disciples listening to these words of Jesus, pay attention and, and see if you can notice and think about your own, your own life and your own interactions with the relationships that you have. Which is easier for you to do? Is it easier for you to recognize what's wrong with you? Or is it easier to recognize what's wrong with someone else? Think about that as we read Luke 6, beginning in verse 36. Jesus says, Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrites. First take the log out of your own eye, 
and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we pray that uh, this morning you would be with us and at work among us, that you would give us your spirit so that we can understand your gospel. Father, your love for us when we were yet enemies is too good for us to believe. And so we so often don't believe it practically as we live our lives in relationship with one another. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to do that anew and afresh this morning and sink that gospel more deeply into our souls. And we pray too for... Uh, the people of Florida this morning as they're enduring the, the ravages of this hurricane that is uh, landing there even now as, as I speak and as we listen. Father, that hurricane is there and people's lives are being turned upside down. Father, we pray that you would use the power of that storm to draw hearts to yourself, to recognize a need for you and to see that the God of heaven is in control even in the midst of a storm. Father, would you let that be so, we pray. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. On December 20 in 1943, 2nd Lieutenant Charlie Brown, not the one whose dog was a First World War flying ace, Snoopy, not that Charlie Brown, but another Charlie Brown who actually was on that date a 21-year-old pilot in the United States Army Air Force, piloting a a B-17 Flying Fortress bomber. This young pilot, 2nd Lieutenant Brown, was on his first bombing run into North Germany, World War II. And his uh, Flying Fortress was flying along in the formation of planes on their way to this particular bombing target. And as they approached, they began to take anti-aircraft fire, and his bomber was damaged severely. Some of the plexiglass gun turrets were shattered, and some of his crew uh, were killed, and and one of his uh, engines was damaged, and so they lost power and had to drop back. They couldn't keep up with the formation. They were flying alone, which made them subject to even greater damage by the attacks of anti-aircraft fire from the ground and fighter planes in the sky. Finally, he had no choice but to turn back and away from from the action, this hobbled bomber. And as he was doing so, on the ground, Franz Stigler, a German fighter pilot, saw this bomber turning around. And Stigler was a decorated German fighter pilot himself. He was lacking only one kill to achieve the coveted Knight's Cross of the German Air Force. And he saw an easy target. And so he took off in his Messerschmitt and raced towards this bomber, which had been a part of the attacking crowd over his Air Force base. And he approached the bomber and he recognized what was happening with this bomber. He saw that it was hobbled and weak. And he saw the plexiglass turrets blown apart. And he saw blood in the windows. He recognized that the crew was damaged worse than the plane was. And instead of attacking, he changed his mind. He flew in a tight wing formation along the right side of this American bomber so that German anti-aircraft fire from the ground would not come their way. And he flew alongside, within eyesight of the pilot Brown, of the American bomber all the way to the edge of the 
the northern coast of Germany, out to the North Sea, and then he saluted and he peeled away. He let them go. <clears throat> he let them go. And we admire an act of courage like that. You know, this is a man who saw a weakness and he refused to exploit it. So the question for us is, if such an act of mercy is so admirable in the ravages of war, then why is it so difficult in the relationships of life? Why is it so hard for us to show such mercy to those around us? Jesus insists here that if you would enter into the kingdom that he's bringing, that he has brought with him in his coming, then the ethic of your relationships must be mercy. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. He has just finished explaining the requirement of love in this kingdom. As I mentioned a moment ago, that you must love not just those who love you back, but you must love your enemies. You must love those who seek to do you harm. And why? Because God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. God himself has loved his very enemies, which are not those people out there, but they are this man right here. And they're you as well. Those are the enemies whom God has loved. And now Jesus insists that that kind of love is going to inevitably overflow in mercy to everyone around you. That kingdom mercy follows a certain pattern, though. He explains it here, verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. The pattern is pretty clear, I think, but it's this. We speak to others today the verdict that God will speak to us tomorrow. We speak to others today the verdict that God will speak to us tomorrow. Now, you've got to be careful about this verse. This is, I think, one of those many, many very misused and misunderstood verses in Scripture. People very often will use, judge not and you will not be judged, condemn not and you will not be condemned. People often use it to legitimize and even to protect many things that dishonor God. People often will say, in, in seeing some circumstance and choices that people have made and those who are trying to intervene to help, often will say, well, you don't judge them because God won't judge you. That's not what this verse is after here. That can't possibly be Jesus' intent because just in the very next paragraph, which we'll look at next week, Jesus explains the difference between a good tree and a bad tree. The, the good fruit that a good tree bears and the bad fruit that a bad tree bears. And he is not talking about trees there. He is asserting that you must have discernment to tell the difference between the good fruit and the bad fruit. And that is not condemnation. It is rather evaluation. It is rather discernment. It's recognition of reality for the good of, of the people involved and for the honor of God. That's what he's talking about. Judgment and condemnation is not ours to give. It belongs only to God. And perhaps that's why Jesus is so insistent on this particular pattern. Because 
if you would presume to play God, then you must not know God. Louis Agassiz was a a renowned scientist in the mid-1800s. He became a professor at Harvard, a professor of zoology and of geology and of paleontology and of almost any other ology that you could come up with. This man was a very renowned scientist in the, the middle 1800s, and he was a lover of nature. He had grown up in the, the nature of Switzerland, and when he was 10 years old, his mother, a nature lover herself, took him to a place in Switzerland in the Alps called Echo Valley because she knew that her 10-year-old son had not yet in his life heard a real echo. And they stood there at the mouth of the valley, and and the mother explained to her 10-year-old son, this future professor, she said, there is, son, living up in this valley, an old man who will speak back to every man who calls out to him from this place. And along with that old man, there's a young boy, a mountain boy who lives there who will speak back to every boy who speaks to him from this place. And so her 10-year-old son, very curious, called out, Hello! And of course, quickly came back the reply, Hello! And the boy called out again, Who are you? And the reply came back, Who are you? And the boy became a little bit perturbed at that. He, he thought, I'm being mimicked here. I'm kind of being mocked. I'm kind of irritated about this. And so he called out, I don't like you. And the voice came back, I don't like you. And the boy was sensitive, a 10-year-old child, you know. And so he turned to his mother and, and, and was kind of upset. He said, I think that's a pretty disagreeable boy who lives back in the valley. And his mother said, well, try saying something nice to him. And so the boy turned and tried again. I like you, he called out. And the answer came back. I like you. I will share my toys with you, he called out. And the voice came back. I will share my toys with you. Every time he spoke, what had been spoken to him came right back to him. And that's just like the pattern that God has created for the mercy of his kingdom. Just like the pattern of an echo, so will be the pattern of God's gospel mercy. How you judge others now, so will God judge you then. How you condemn others now, so will God condemn you then. How you forgive others now, so will God forgive you then. And how you give to others now, so will God give to you then. Your Words and your actions are are not works righteousness here. That's not the point. But rather your words and your actions are simply proof of whether God's gospel mercy has ever actually come to roost in your own life. Just a few chapters later in Luke, Luke tells us the story of Jesus being invited to dinner at the home of a religious man named Simon. You may know the story. Simon invites Jesus in, and he comes in to dinner and reclines at the table. And there, in the outer courtyard, accessible to the public and to others who might come in, a woman joins them, not to eat dinner, but to greet Jesus. And she's a sinful woman, we're told. And and the implication is that she's a prostitute, a woman of the city. And she comes in, 
And as Jesus is reclined there at the table with Simon, the religious man, the woman begins to, 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 to wash Jesus' feet with her tears and wipe his feet with her hair and to anoint his feet with ointment. And Simon, thinking to himself, makes a judgment call. And he says to himself, if this man Jesus were actually a prophet, then he would know who this woman is who is at his feet. Jesus, of course, understands Simon's posture of judgment, and he speaks up to Simon. He says, Simon, I have something to tell you. There was, he says, a certain moneylender who had loaned money to two businessmen. One of them owed him a little, and the other owed him a lot, but neither of them could pay back their debt. And so the moneylender forgave their debts. Simon, which of those two businessmen do you think will be more grateful to the moneylender? And Simon replied rightly, I suppose the one whose debt was larger. Jesus said, that's exactly right. He said, ever since I came into your house, this woman has been washing my feet with her tears and drying my feet with her hair and anointing my feet with the ointment that she has. And you've done none of these things, Simon. And so he turns to the woman and says, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Simon doesn't get such words. Because Jesus had just explained here in this little sermon the golden rule. He said, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. It's really pretty simple. I mean, it's a very simple, there's nothing complex about that. Anyone can understand what he means by the echo of that pattern. As you wish that others would do for you, do so to them. Who of us wants to be judged? Who of us wants to be condemned? None of us do. And yet we judge others and we condemn others. And so you have to, you have to ask yourself the question and, and do some self-evaluation that's healthy, self-critique in the light of Scripture and wonder, do you find fault in others easily? Do you criticize others quickly? Is that the nature of your relationships? Is that the way that you posture yourself among the people who are around you? And if so, then maybe you should ask yourself, do I really know this kingdom mercy? Jesus continues here and he reinforces this truth with an agricultural expression that we ought to understand pretty easily. He says, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. We understand that, that figure of speech because we've all opened a bag of potato chips before. Right? You know what I mean by that. You've opened that bag of potato chips and, and you pop it open and you can feel that there's so much air in there and you wonder if there are any potato chips in the bag. And every time you open it, the answer is obvious to you, right? And, and are, please tell me I'm not the only one. You've also been disappointed by a bag of potato chips because the contents have settled during shipping And now it's all at the bottom and it's just full of air. That's what he's after here. He's explaining that in this agricultural day, when a transaction was made, a a good uh, seller of grain who has a generous heart will pour it out into the the lap of the one receiving it. They might have their, their, their cloak raised up to receive the grain. And the one pouring it in would allow him to shake and settle it down. So it would settle down to the bottom. And then he'd pour more in until it was overflowing from the top. 
This is what comes with God's measure of mercy. This is the way that it works. It will overflow for better or for worse. For the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. We speak to others now the verdict that God will speak to us then. And if you would live with the measure of God's gospel mercy, then it also requires a certain vision. Verse 39, he told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Now, the answer to that is yes. Sort of. But then won't they, will they not both fall into a pit? Of course they will. Because a blind man is going to lead a blind man where a blind man goes, and they're both going to fall into a pit. We have a vision problem. Jake Olson is a college football player. Last Saturday he made his debut, I think it was, as the long snapper for the USC Trojans football team. And Jake Olson is blind. He has not seen since he was 12 years old when a degenerative disease took his eyesight away. And he is blind. He continued to play football as a long snapper. This is the guy that snaps the ball back to the holder for a field goal or back to the putter for a kick. He continued to do that through high school, and he, he achieved well enough to, to walk on to the football team at, at the University of Southern California, and there he's become a long snapper. And last Saturday, he, he had his debut snap. He successfully snapped the ball back for a successful field goal, and it was a huge celebration because his teammates had had to lead him out onto the field. He didn't know where to go because he couldn't see. They took him right to the, the right spot and they put him in the right place and they told him the ball is right there below you and he succeeded. And there was a huge celebration of his teammates following after. A huge celebration because it was a great accomplishment. But it's not so great an accomplishment as what the measure of God's mercy requires because we're all blind. To what? We read from Genesis 3 moments ago this morning in the Old Testament reading. And, and the, the part of that scripture that precedes what you heard is, of course, the story of the temptation in the garden. The serpent tempted, tempted the woman in the garden with the fruit of the tree of which they were told not to eat. And she ate and she gave some to her husband. And we read there that their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. So their eyes were opened at that moment, and I I think it's a figure of speech to give you a sense of that they were growing in some awareness of a circumstance. But what was it that they focused their attention on? It was themselves. What they became aware of was their own shame. And, And so their vision became contained within. That's all that they could see. They were ashamed. So why do you think that you're tempted to judge other people? I can tell you, I think. It's because you're ashamed of yourself. It's because you're ashamed of yourself. I mean, why why do you think that you're tempted to condemn other people? It's because you feel condemned, just as they did. Your eyes may work okay, but your gaze is set in the wrong direction. You're blind to what it is that you must see in order to live in this kingdom. Jesus goes on, verse 40, he says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. 
what should your eyes be set on? On your teacher. You know, faithful Jews at the, in the first century would follow after a teacher, a rabbi. They, they would, would, would hook their lives to his and follow along listening to his teachings and, and memorizing his words, even writing them down on their sleeves. If they ran out of something to write on, they would write it on their sleeves or on their arm. Because that was their task, was to, to learn from their teacher, to, to, to watch him, to do what he did, to become like him, to imitate him. And if he was an unwise teacher, if he was ignorant or blind, then they too would all fall into the same pit because a blind man would become like his teacher. Just like any group of people eventually becomes or comes to resemble the one who leads them. Churches are this way. I mean, every church is this way, especially smaller churches. Churches, inevitably, over the course of time, corporately, as a body, they begin in many ways to reflect the nature of the one who leads them. And, you know, I fully realize, I mean, the longer that I'm the pastor of, of this particular church, the more this particular church, in many ways, begins to look like I do. And there will be days when I rejoice over that. And there will be days when I have to repent for that. Because ultimately, that's in a sense what happens to some degree or another. But Lord willing, we're all together having our eyes fixed on a much greater leader than any man or woman. We've got our eyes fixed on Jesus. Because the vision that the measure of mercy requires is to have your eyes fixed on Christ. Jesus explains here that, that everyone who's fully trained will be like his teacher. This, this term, fully trained, is an interesting one. It, it means for something to be put in order or to be restored. The same word is actually used elsewhere in the Gospels when it refers to the, the disciples, the fishermen, mending their fishing nets. And so, you know, the picture is, of course, that that. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, we are in the depth of our souls being mended. We're being restored. We're being, we're being put in order as we, all, as we ought to be as God's creatures. We're being fully trained. And so the question for your vision is, do you see the righteousness of Christ? Do you recognize the Son of God walking before you? You know, every time that we have these great conversations with our, our young believers, our, our kids in our congregation to talk about coming to the communion table, we always ask them about, about what is the gospel? How, can you explain the gospel? Tell us, what, how, what, how would you say to a friend of yours who asks you, what does it mean to be a Christian? And, you know, always the, the, the immediate answer is, it means that Jesus died for my sins. And that is so important. That is always right. And we want to encourage our kids with that answer. That is inevitably and crucial, a part of what the gospel is. Jesus died for my sins. But my follow-up question is, yes, and what else? Because there's something else that is absolutely critical to the gospel. Not only did Jesus die for my sins, but he also lived for my righteousness. He lived perfectly in the light of the law of God and he accomplished for me what I could never accomplish for myself. And so the question for you with your vision trouble is, do you see the righteousness 
of Christ? Do you trust it? Do you rely on it? Do you rest in it? Are you covered by it? Do you hide in it? Do you see the righteousness of Christ? Because if not, then you are prone to disease. And the measure of God's mercy confronts the disease to which you're prone. Verse 42, Jesus continues, How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself don't see the log that's in your own eye, you hypocrite. I will never forget the story of a pastor I heard years and years ago who attempted to invite his neighbor to church one week. He invited his neighbor, won't you come to church with us and come check it out and and see what it's all about? And his neighbor's uh, semi-respectful answer was, Pastor, listen, I mean no offense to you, but churches are full of hypocrites and I just don't want anything to do with that mess. And the pastor's savvy reply, respectful but firm, was, well, we've always got room for one more. So if you decide to come along, just let me know. We've always got room for one more. There is an ugly disease that is pervasive within the human race, and it's called hypocrisy. The Greek word that Jesus gives us here is interesting. It's almost exactly the same as the English word that's in your Bible before you. Hupokrita. Hypocrit. And a hypocrita was, in the ancient Greek world, a play actor. It was somebody who was on stage up here in a play. Someone who was pretending to be something that they weren't. Someone who in that day and age would, would have a mask that they would hold in front of their face. And if their role required anger, there would be an angry mask in front of their face. If their role required sorrow, there would be a crying mask. Or if it required laughter, there would be a laughing mask that they would hold in front of their face. And they could play act that way. The point being that they were pretending to be one thing while hiding another thing. They were pretending to be something they weren't while hiding what they actually were. And we all do it. We all do it because we all have Genesis 3 in common. So go back again with me to Genesis 3. And think about the scene there that we read earlier. You know, the the man and the woman in the garden had been tempted by the serpent and they had done what they had been strictly commanded not to do, having been given all the freedom of of the creation except for this one thing. And they had done exactly what they'd been commanded not to do. And their eyes were opened and they saw that they were naked. And what did they do? But they sewed fig leaves together or they made loincloths for themselves, depending on what Bible English translation you're looking at. The point being that they covered their shame. They made some attempt to cover what they now recognized about themselves. But when God arrived on the scene and they now had to answer for themselves... What mask did they hide behind? You heard it read earlier. What was the mask that they put on in front of their face? It was blame casting. Did you hear it? You've heard the words before. You've heard what they said. You know, the, the, the woman blamed the serpent as she pointed to the serpent's faults. She said, the, the devil made me do it. And the man blamed the woman as he pointed at her faults. He said, 
She made me do it. And then the man had the audacity to suggest that God had some blame in it. Did you notice what he said? He said, the woman that you gave to be with me, she did it. In other words, God, you did it. God, you're to blame. I mean, the whole thing is just a blame-casting party. There's a speck in his eye. There's a speck in her eye. There's a speck in your eye, God. You're at fault. You're the one who did it. The mask that we most love to hide behind is the fault of someone else. So how do you recognize this disease? How do you recognize if if you struggle with this disease? And you do. It's there. It's a part of who you are. Unfortunately, in the fall, it's a part of you. How do you recognize it? Well, there are a lot of ways, I imagine. I mean, one way would be in the way that you receive criticism. We've had to, to acknowledge this in the past couple of weeks in these words that Jesus has said here. You know, nobody wants to be criticized. Nobody wants to be judged or condemned. But when you receive criticism, how do you respond? If you respond by pointing at the faults of the criticizer, then you may be in trouble. If you respond by casting blame or by throwing a tantrum in order to distract and and draw attention away from yourself, then you just may have it bad. You just may be as diseased as you could ever imagine, and even more so. I think it's a classic lawyer defense. I mean, now, I'm not a lawyer, but I do know some things. I've, I've been on a jury before in, a, in a, a courtroom trial, and I've watched what happens. And I've read all of John Grisham's books. I know a few things about the legal world, and, and I, I think I know that, that a classic lawyer defense move is to discredit the witness, right? To discredit the witness. I mean, and there, there's a certain football player in our community who's at work with lawyers doing some of that even now, right? We've read it. If you're a sports fan, you've seen that in the headlines. And, of course, we've just come through a, a long political campaign season in which this kind of thing was just absolutely rampant, which unfortunately is part of the American political campaign world, disastrously so, that politicians in trying to avoid policy questions or matters of their own character and fitness for office will immediately and quickly point at their opponents and and point out their flaws and their faults in order to direct blame in some other way. And it's easy for us to think about those particular situations And then for us to even sit here right now, as I'm tempting you to do, and judge and condemn those people. Why? Because their faults help us to avoid ours. The specks in their eyes distract attention from the logs in our own eyes. Jesus' word picture here is is a ridiculous one, isn't it? I think it's made to be that way. I think that's what he intended. It is ridiculous. It is hyperbole, exaggeration. It is bordering on humorous. And it probably was kind of funny as Jesus explained this thing about the speck and, you know, the piece of sawdust in your neighbor's eye and a log in your eye. And I would imagine that it made the crowd laugh for just a moment until they began to realize the implications in their own lives. And I, I do think that this idea of the speck versus the log, I, I, I think that that is not a matter of degree. I think what Jesus is saying here is not 
that person with the sawdust in their eye is a lot less sinful than you are with the log. I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think that would be consistent with the rest of Scripture. Rather, I think it's something maybe more like, to use a different word picture, an iceberg. If an iceberg had self-awareness floating in the ocean, it would be somewhat self-aware of how much of its volume resides under the surface of the water. Whereas the passerby on the ship would see it and only see the speck and not the log, as it were. There's always much more under the surface. Jesus insists, though, that that you need to acknowledge your own faults first because there's so much more under the surface than anyone else can possibly see. Now, that does not mean that you can't correct a brother or a sister. I mean, he makes that implication pretty clear, doesn't he? He says, first take the log out of your own eye and then help your brother. Because that speck in your brother's eye is real. It's a real thing. It really is there, and sometimes your brother needs help. I mean, Paul wrote about it in Galatians. Chapter 6, his, his word was, he said, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him with gentleness, with a spirit of gentleness. But, he said, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Don't hide behind their faults because you bring your own faults to the table. So how does God's measure of mercy confront this disease? How does it do it? It does it with the gospel. It does it with the righteousness of Christ. It does it with the righteousness of a Redeemer who could stand in your place and take the blame for you. After all, God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, God hung His righteous Son on that log. And now you're free. And He did it in order to declare us to be faultless before His throne. And if you live and move and have your being in that good news then there's no reason for self-defense. There's no reason to jump down the throat of someone near you in order to cast blame to distract from your own problems. There's no reason for that ever. Because the gospel is better news than that. The gospel is remarkable news, and it is the measure of gospel mercy. So imagine this church being filled more and more with people who know This measure of God's mercy. I mean, imagine what it would be like. People who are eager more and more to to forego words of judgment and condemnation because in Christ, God has spoken to us words of forgiveness and charity. I mean, that, that is, by God's grace, to a measure who we are as a church. But imagine that even more and more. Imagine more and more of that abounding and flowing among us and and what it would do. Imagine what it would cause us to be in the communities in which we operate daily in our ordinary lives. Imagine what it would do. I mean, this would be more and more a place where sinners could actually come and not feel threatened by people but have their sin threatened by a righteous God who loves them. That would be a remarkable thing. 
That would be the goal of any and every church, I would hope, and certainly of ours. In the words of a friend of mine, it would be a place where there would be less pressure to perform and more encouragement to grow. Over 40 years after that World War II incident, Second Lieutenant Charlie Brown and his crew had been spared by that German fighter over northern Germany on their way to the, the, the North Sea. And four decades later, Brown and the German fighter pilot had occasion to meet each other. A remarkable opportunity to, to meet each other and to greet and to relive and remember the days of the war. And Brown was curious now an old man and, and beyond his career and heading towards the, the twilight of his life, he wanted to know, why did you show mercy to me and, that, and my crew on that day four decades ago? He asked the question, and the German's answer was, as I flew up to your plane, I remembered very clearly my training officer as I trained to become a fighter pilot, and he gave me this instruction. He said, If I ever hear of you gunning down a man who is parachuting to safety and helpless in the air, I will come and find you. He said, you never gun down the helpless. You had no parachute on that day, but you were no less helpless than that man would have been. From the one who would live in the kingdom of God, it is required that such mercy be shown because by such a one has this mercy been received. Go, good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over has been poured into your lap. Go therefore and do likewise in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, we pray that you would help us to do these things, that you would help us to recognize your great mercy for us, and that we would respond mercifully to others. Father, enable us by the strength of your Spirit to forego judgment and condemnation, recognizing that all that we speak now will be spoken back to us, and recognizing that the proof of your mercy to us is the mercy of our own hearts and words to those around us. Father, help us. We pray that you would do these things for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.